<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. You're the mom, the maid, the keeper of the cookies. You do it all and you look good doing it. It's parenthood on a mother level. Here's your host, Denise Hanitka. Hi, everybody. You are listening to a brand new episode of On a Mother Level. I'm your host, Denise Hanitka. If you're brand new to the podcast, welcome to this brand new mom community where we are talking about everything that is real and relatable when it comes to parenthood. Hopefully, when you listen to our episodes, you say, hey, I can relate to that. That's what we're all about here. But this episode is a little bit different because I want to share a personal and professional experience that I just had that I think you'll be interested in, especially some of my true crime fans out there. This is going to be a commentary on the case involving the murder of Molly Tibbetts. Molly Tibbetts was a 20-year-old University of Iowa college student, and she was murdered in the summer of 2018. She was on her nightly run when she disappeared, and five weeks later, her body was found in a cornfield not far off her running route. She had been stabbed to death and left there in that field, and it took five weeks to find her. And in this case, the testimony was that Christian Bahena Rivera was the one who led investigators to her body. He was charged with her murder five weeks after she disappeared, and so he was on trial, charged with first-degree murder. And that trial took place in Scott County, Iowa, in Davenport, Iowa. It was moved out of Pauschick County because of pretrial publicity in this case. The summer of 2018, there were national headlines related to Molly's disappearance. Number one, because she was a young woman, a very pretty girl who just disappeared one night. And then it made more national headlines because the man accused of her murder, Christian Bahena Rivera, is an undocumented immigrant. And a lot of people, especially during this time, were very, very angry that an undocumented immigrant would be accused of such a horrible, horrible crime. So in order to break down this case, I have asked a fellow reporter to be my guest today. She is a correspondent with Law and Crime Network. Her name is Anjanette Levy, and you're really going to appreciate her expertise. She has more than 15 years of covering local news and now narrowed down in the crime genre by following trials through the Law and Crime Network. So I know you are really going to enjoy hearing from her. One thing you may not realize about Anjanette is that she appeared in the documentary that everyone was talking about for years called Making a Murderer, the documentary that was on Netflix focusing on the Stephen Avery case that happened up in Wisconsin. And so if you're familiar with Making a Murderer, I asked her about it a little later in the episode because she had a little cameo in Making a Murderer. And she attracted a lot of attention because she had a tendency to ask tough questions of 
the investigators in the Stephen Avery case and often of the defense in the Stephen Avery case. And in particular, she, you know, would give these facial expressions that the Internet really, really loved. So I talked to her about that as well. But while we cover the Molly Tibbetts portion, I want to give you a little cheat sheet of some names that are important to know. So first and foremost, Molly Tibbetts. She is the victim. She was murdered in July 2018 while out on her nightly run. Sometimes she ran three miles, sometimes six miles, and it was all in the town of Brooklyn, Iowa, between Des Moines and Cedar Rapids, a little town. And, you know, she'd be running on gravel roads, very rural area, and... On this night, she never came home. The man accused of her murder is named Christian Bejena Rivera. As I mentioned, he's an undocumented immigrant, speaks mostly Spanish, and so he relied on the help of translators throughout the trial. He would wear headphones so that his translators could tell him what was happening in the testimony. Another name that you will need to know is Scott Brown. Scott Brown is the assistant Iowa attorney general, and he was prosecuting the case along with Bart Claver the Powshik County attorney. Defense attorneys in this case are Chad and Jennifer Fries, a married couple, private attorneys that were hired by Bahena Rivera's family and friends, so not a public defender in this case. Another important name that comes up is Dalton Jack. Dalton Jack was Molly's boyfriend. He says they had been together about three years. He was planning to propose. And throughout this trial, his name gets brought up an awful lot because the defense really believes that he was not investigated closely enough. Now, he testified that he was out of town for work. At the time of Molly's disappearance, he worked for a road construction company, and he says that he was in Dubuque at that time, which was about two hours away from Brooklyn. So he says he was nowhere in town. The defense poked and prodded him over his involvement with other women whether he was honest with Molly about their relationship, and if perhaps some of those mistruths and some of the infidelity in their relationship may have given him a motive to kill Molly. And so that was one of the defense's main arguments that we do talk about uh, in this episode. You're also going to hear the name Ron Pexa. Ron Pexa was brought up by the defense as well as somebody else in town who perhaps was a little suspicious. And in fact, Ron Pexa's daughter testified for the defense saying that her dad is dangerous and that he abused her and her sisters and that she was very afraid when Molly went missing and the search was taking place near his home, and she called the tip line to voice her concern about her father's potential involvement. Again, Dalton Jack and Ron Pexa were never named suspects in this case. Dalton Jack, for his part, was publicly cleared by investigators about a week into Molly's disappearance. But again, this is the defense's job to bring up these holes potentially in the case and the investigation, and to point at what's sometimes called the some other dude defense, the SOD. The defense in this case argued that not only was there some other dude, but some other dudes that actually kidnapped Christian Bahena Rivera in his home and forced him to drive them around so that they could kill Molly. That was his testimony when he took the stand. So I talked to Anjanette about whether or not she was surprised to see that he would testify in his own defense. The main pieces of the prosecution's case involved security camera footage showing a black car circling the area where Molly had been running. And in fact, there are just a few quick fractions of a second in that same camera showing Molly run by or a runner that they believe to be Molly. 
And without that video, this case likely would not have been solved. That video is so, so important. So we'll talk about that. The other thing that kind of sealed Bahena Rivera's fate was blood being found in his trunk, the car seen circling the area around Molly's running route. And then the third thing is the confession that Bahena Rivera first gave when he was called to the sheriff's office after his car was identified from those security cameras. And so the other name that you'll need to know is Pamela Romero. Pamela is the police officer who was called in to investigate and interrogate Bahena Rivera on that night because she is a native Spanish speaker. And she was eventually able to get Bahena Rivera to confess. And what he told her that night was that he had seen Molly, thought she was attractive, stopped to talk to her, but that Molly got agitated and was very angry and threatening to call police. And that's when he told Pamela Romero that he fought with her, Molly slapped him, and that he got very angry and blacked out. And it wasn't until he was driving away in his car and he spotted Molly's earbuds on the passenger seat of his car that he realized, I have a girl in my trunk and she needs to be dealt with. And so he says that's what brought him out of this blacked out state. He gets Molly out of his trunk, leaves her in the cornfields, and walks away. Well, in fact, what the evidence in this case shows is that Molly's body had been left in that cornfield, covered up with corn stalks, just as he said that it would be, but that her shorts and her underwear and her headband had been discarded and thrown at least 15 to 20 feet away from her body. So while there was no direct evidence that Molly had been sexually assaulted, prosecutors do believe that there was a sexual motive in this case. Molly's body uh, was too decomposed to be able to get any DNA off the lower portion of her body or to have any evidence of what actually happened to her. But I think we can all kind of fill in the blanks on that situation. Now, Pamela Romero's work was called into question because she was a relatively inexperienced police officer. But in the course of her interview with Bahena Rivera... She left out a portion of his Miranda warnings. So pre-trial, the judge threw out a portion of his confession. And so the prosecution had to deal with the fact that the jury could hear about their interview leading up to his confession, but they never got to hear how he ultimately got them to the cornfield where he then was re-Mirandized, his rights were read again, properly this time, and that out of the cornfield is where he tells this story all over again, but that portion of the interview was not recorded. So the defense pounced on that and said, see, this is a false confession. He didn't know what was happening to him in that interrogation room. They argued that he was sleepy, he was deprived of being able to talk to his family, and he was exhausted, and that he was just telling investigators what they wanted to hear because he was afraid of being deported. So the defense really goes after Pamela Romero as well. But ultimately, they would put him on the stand, and he would give this new story. So that's the first time that we ever heard that new confession which is different from the confession that he gave to Pamela Romero. Now, what Bahena Rivera did when he took the stand in his own defense is he says, well, yes, yes, she was in my trunk, but for a different reason. 
He got on the stand and he testified that he was getting out of the shower one night when two men were in his trailer home. One had a gun, one had a knife, and that they ordered him to drive them around and that he followed their directions turn by turn until at some point they stopped, got out of the car, he heard some shuffling around in the trunk, and then he left him there with Molly in the trunk of the car, and that's when he decided to throw her body in the cornfields. And he says he did that all under duress because there was somebody threatening him with a knife and a gun and threatening his daughter and his ex-girlfriend, his daughter's mother. So he says he did that out of fear. And so what the jury had to consider was these three main points from the prosecution versus what Bahena Rivera said had happened, plus the addition of, so if there were two mysterious kidnapper men, who were they? Was it Dalton Jack? Was it Dalton Jack and a friend? His brother, perhaps? And so it was an interesting seven days of trial testimony. And the jury heard from close to 30 witnesses. And ultimately, it took them about seven hours to come back and decide that Christian Bahena Rivera was, in fact, guilty of the murder of Molly Tibbetts. So that's the breakdown of the case. That's the cheat sheet that will hopefully make it easy for you to listen to this episode. So my guest... Once again, is Anjanette Levy with the Law and Crime Network. And I really enjoyed talking with her and um, talking a little shop and weighing in on this court case because one of the things I love about covering trials is the, the legal chess game that takes place and trying to figure out the strategy as you listen um, to the, the evidence and the narratives that unfold. So I hope you enjoy this episode. You can listen to the end to hear more about the cases that Anjanette will be covering, including the Scott Peterson appeal that's happening right now out in California. And follow along with the podcast. The Instagram is at on a mother level. Hope to connect with you there. And so here is Anjanette Levy. And I wanted to start by talking to her about her transition from local news to the Law and Crime Network. So that's where we will begin with this interview. Here we go. So I didn't realize that you had just left your station in September. I didn't realize it was that recent. Yeah. That must have been a big decision, like mid-pandemic. Yeah. I mean, it was funny because everybody was like, you're not going to find a job. It's going to be so hard and you're not going to make, you won't, you know, people were just like all this. I mean, I felt a little worried, but not really. I really yeah. wasn't worried. I was kind of like, you know what? I'm just going to do this. Um I didn't like what they were offering me. I didn't like the way I was treated and I left and I wasn't the first one to leave. So. Yeah, no, I read that it was kind of like, uh, there was a bit of an exodus happening at that station. Yes, definitely. So, okay. So 10 years there at the station in Cincinnati and then like just a little over five in green Bay. I know. So over like almost 20 years in local news, like it's a yeah. big deal to walk away. Even though you're yeah. doing something similar, it's still a big deal, I think. Well, and it's, here's the thing. When I left, I had no idea what I was going to do. Yeah. Like, seriously, I had no idea. Um, and when I say that, I didn't want to leave news. I knew I wasn't leaving news. Um, I just knew I was leaving the place where I had been doing news for 10 years. So I didn't, <clears throat> I didn't want to leave news. I still wanted to stay in it. 
I just didn't know, do I go local? Do I try to go somewhere to another market? Do I go bigger, like national, try to do that? I was kind of like, you know what? I, my husband was like, just take, you know, if you decide to stay local, just take the six months for your non-compete and just chill out and figure out what you want to do, like recharge, just recharge your batteries. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I should totally just relax and recharge. And then my last day at channel 12, I was literally walking into my news director's office because he wanted to speak with me. And I got a notification on my phone from my friend, um, Aaron, who works at law and crime. (laughs) And he said, I have a part-time job for you Tuesday, if you want it. Oh my gosh. And I was like, really? (laughs) And he's like, yeah. And I, so I was like, well, I'm supposed to be recharging. And I was like, okay, well, we can talk about it because I had no idea what it was going to be or anything like that. And they were starting this new syndicated um, daily news case about crime, law and crime. It's called Law and Crime Daily. Um, it was really like a newscast for the top legal and crime stories of the day. And he said, look, I need help. Um, we're just launching this show. If you could come on and help me write, I'll put you on the air. You could do some stuff until you figure out what you want to do. And I said, yeah, that's fine. And um, <clears throat> so I was like working on it, you know, working with him, like, so many hours a week and then, you know, working on my reel. And I just really was enjoying working there. (laughs) And the more I kind of thought about like, wow, do I leave, even though it was a part-time job, do I leave this job that I'm really enjoying? And I really like the people and the work environment to go do something else. And then they asked me to come on full-time and I felt like, well, must've been meant to be. So, um, I took the full-time offer and, kind of just stopped looking at the other options that were on the table. So, okay. So does lawn crime have like a headquarters? Like, are you remote? How does that work? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm remote. I work out of, uh, I've converted a bedroom. It was like kind of my ironing room <laughs> and like storage room. I've kind of converted it into a TV studio sort of. Um, and then I just work, you know, do my stuff here, shoot my interviews over there, right at this desk. I write everything. And then you know, do interviews for my radio show here. So it's cool. That's very cool. And it's like really, I mean, I very fortunate, right? It's, it feels like a setup you would have never been able to do when you imagine, like when you started in the news biz, Oh, never, never. that would have never been something you could do. Never. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess the pandemic gave me a present, right? Yes. (laughs) Like a gift from the pandemic. I could work from home. So Law and crime is based in New York. They do have other people who are remote, you know, but I'm really the only, you know, correspondent type person or what have you that's remote. So okay. I'm actually the only one correspondent really at all. So, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really interesting. It's been really cool. Like they're, they've been really great and great to work for. So. I'm well, really and it's happy. right in your wheelhouse. You know, these are the types of stories you would be covering in local news anyway. Exactly. You know, in 2019, I covered five trials and that was unusual, Um, but we just happened to have five trials in 2019 that I, I covered. So this is what I really like to do. I mean, I like covering other types of stories as well. It's not just crime stories. I do like doing other stories, but in local news, you know, you get sent out to go tell people, you know, oh, you know, got windy last night and there's a tree branch on the ground and, you know, stuff like that. And I, I I don't miss doing that. I can tell you that. (laughs) Find debris. 
we heard there's some debris. debris. Can you go find it? You know, oh, there's some tree limbs down. Great. <laughs> Let's do a live shot. You know, I don't miss that. How do your assignments work that you guys take a look at all of the active cases that are happening and start like, you know, planning ahead for the year? Like, how did you get um, Molly Tibbetts? Yeah, like, well, with Molly Tibbetts, it was a couple weeks before, three weeks before, possibly something like that. And they just said, hey, will you will you go? To, do you mind going to Iowa to cover this case? And I said, oh, yeah, that'd be great. And I um, I remember when this happened, um, just this, you know, search for this this young woman. And, you know, you remember, I remember seeing it on the national news and thinking, gosh, how horrible, you know, because stranger abductions overall are pretty rare. And then when they found her, obviously just heartbreaking, you know, hearing that somebody was found covered in corn in a cornfield, I mean, just basically thrown away like trash. So um, I was very interested in covering it once they approached me about it. And just the fact that, um, you know, the whole immigration portion of this did not you know, excite me. I don't, I don't have some like strong opinion on that. I was more interested in the fact that you had a stranger and somebody who doesn't speak the language, you know, accused of doing this who, and he, you know, allegedly confessed the jury says he confessed. So it's a fact now. So it was, it was really interesting, but just awful. I mean, so sad watching those crime scene pictures during the trial was just, you know, that poor girl, she suffered. Right, right. Where the crime actually happened is about two hours from us, you know, mm. and so we were we were covering it on a limited basis. You know, it didn't make sense to send reporters that way. Obviously, University sure. of Iowa is relatively, you know, closer to us than Brooklyn. And so that was three years ago. So I don't think I had had my second by that point. But I just remember you know, once they said what they thought had happened to her and she had gone missing on a run, there was a huge event here called Miles for Molly. And they just like brought this huge group of runners all together and encouraged people to just run and, mm -hmm. and, you know, just do it in her honor. And yeah, that's it, nice. <laughs> it just really touched people around here because, mm -hmm. you know, running is just, it's, it, it, I don't know, it's something you should feel safe doing, but I'm sure, sure if you've ever been on the bike path, pushing your, your son in a stroller, you've looked behind your shoulder a couple of times and. You oh, know, and you know. I, I won't do that actually there. Yeah. You know, I remember I would try to walk with my son in the stroller when he was younger. And I always did it at this one park where the loop was out in the open. Um, just because I cover these horrible stories and, um, you know, you hear about, there are people like you know, kind of creepers, like flasher type people who will target women on bike paths and walking paths where there's wooded areas and stuff like that. So I never go to those places by myself. Yeah. Um, and I always try to be careful with the ear pods and the earbuds, whatever. Um, I always try to be very careful with that, not to keep them, not to keep the sound too loud, just so I'm aware of, you know, I can right. hear things around me. No. And I just, I hate that that's a fact. Yeah. It's, it's horrible. Reality. It's horrible that you have to think like that. Right. Um, you know, Molly Tibbetts should be able to leave her house and go out for a run at, you know, what, eight o'clock at night on a, a summer night and right. come home and be fine. Let's go through some of the details of the case a little bit here. So, you know, the prosecution promised they were going to give us these three, these three things, the security cameras, the blood in the car mm -hmm. and the confession. Okay. So some of my takeaways from it were, I was blown away watching that security camera footage because 
I think it's a miracle they saw her in it oh, in the first place. Totally. I mean, even when we knew what we were looking for, I watched it several times to see it. I did too. I thought it was a rabbit. I mean, literally, and I, Matt George, the guy that spotted it, the agent that they kept referring to, I thought to myself, he must have eagle eyes. I mean, I, I would, I'm not sure I would have noticed that. And I actually screen recorded it and then zoomed in on it because I kept watching and watching and I could not see what they were referring to. And I had to watch it probably 10 or 15 times before I actually saw what they were referring to. I saw the shadow, but I, I couldn't see what they were talking about. And I'm like, how in the world did he see this? (laughs) Yeah. It's nothing short of a miracle that that spot was even spotted. And then I just think about the police work of, so seeing her and then watching these vehicles and seeing that consistency in the vehicles, Mm -hmm. because I almost wonder if, if that car had not been marked, you know, with those aftermarket chromes, Mm -hmm. if that car would have even been identified as being the same car, you know? Sure. Because it, I mean, that's a pretty common car. It was so nondescript. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of a plain car. Um, and just the fact that, and I, that one agent said that he had a spreadsheet kind of diet, keeping track of the vehicles and everything. I, I just, it's amazing to me that they came up with that. It just blew my mind that in general, had that guy not lived in that house with those cameras and they were all perfectly functioning, you know, they had talked about storms and things blowing mm-hmm. through. Had that not existed, I don't think we would have found her. Oh, no. I, I think they would have eventually found her, but it would have been when they were pulling the corn or what sure. harvesting, I guess, you know. And I think they even do that with machines, right? Right, so right. Maybe they wouldn't have found her. I don't know, because she was obviously in between the rows of right. corn. So maybe somebody would have, I guess maybe she wouldn't have been found. I don't know. I, I don't know how that corn, the pulling and harvesting of the corn goes. I guess you're not well, out there doing it by hand. So, well, and I don't want to like make myself sound like a creep, but I had like an extensive conversation with my father-in-law about like how a combine <laughs> works. Oh, awesome. And, awesome. And if, you know, cause I was like, okay, so when this machine goes over, you know, would she have been pulled into the machine or, you know, and he just basically, said it likely would have because of the way those like whatever they're called some agriculture kid is listening like cutting things or something yeah like it's like these like you know like like (laughs) they go like stick out in front oh so they go out in front and they get yeah get the corn like this and they (laughs) they have blades yeah it's like it's like they pull it up somehow oh okay so so he was saying that they're probably about six inches off the ground so potentially oh. the machine would have just gone right over. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So she may not have ever been, it may right. have been as many years if right. first could have gone by. Exactly. And especially just how rapidly, you know, the body was decomposing. Yes. And, you yes. know, by the time they go through the next year to plant is maybe when you'd have a better visibility. I don't know. I'm not super versed on agriculture, but I, but I asked my, my father-in-law the same question. Cause I'm like, you know, what are the chances she would have ever been found there? And, and without that one guy with those cameras, it's, you know, it's very, very fortunate. Those facts came together. Oh, sure. Sure. Definitely. I agree. And in the Fitbit too. Oh um, gosh. Yes. The fact that she, you know, had her routes, uploaded or whatever. Right. That was um really interesting too, how they 
they were, you know, smart enough or hip enough to say, oh, we should look for her smart, you know, her Fitbit and her phone. And right. Certainly narrowed down the area significantly. What were your thoughts on the blood evidence in the car? And this is where I kind of like make that parallel to the Avery case, because here you have a really, really bloody crime right? and a smear of blood left. What were your thoughts on that? Well, I can tell you right now, I was literally having flashbacks to the I bet, Avery I bet. case. I was like, when they would show the like blood smear in the car, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like seriously. And so in the Avery case, it was different though, because you had a a good amount of the victim's blood in the cargo area um, because they claimed that she had, that it was a, you know, she had been put in the cargo area and there was like a pattern with the blood that they claimed was her bleeding from the head. um, And it showed hair, like a hair pattern or something from the blood. We heard testimony about that in that trial and the suspect's blood, the defendant's blood was the one where you had the little smears and drips in this one. It was like just a little bit of blood. Like, I guess they said that one dot was like a centimeter and then the Mm -hmm. smear on the gasket. That makes me wonder, okay, was she incapacitated when she was placed in the trunk, but not bleeding a lot or was there an effort to clean up afterwards? And it just wasn't a good enough cleanup job. Right. So that's what it made me think. And at one point, some of the questions the defense was asking, I was like, oh my God, are they going to say that the cops planted her blood? Yeah. (laughs) I, I really felt like they were hinting at that at times. And then the medical examiner said um, he wasn't able to get any blood because she was too decomposed. So that probably blew that, you know, line of defense. So I did kind of have a flashbacks to that, but just the fact that they, um, especially too, they said they didn't see it at the sheriff's office, but then when they got it to the crime lab, she said she saw it. And I'm like, oh my God, they're totally going to say the cops planted the blood, <laughs> but then they didn't. So, you know, maybe it was the part that I was thinking about, about the garage being the crime scene or something. I remember something in the Avery case being like, if she had been killed here, there would have been blood everywhere, but the garage yeah. is such a mess or something like that. And I thought that way about the trunk where I yeah. thought this is kind of a dusty trunk and you know, these fishing poles and right. <laughs> there's, and there was, they said there was blood on some items, but it was like inconclusive, the DNA right. or whatever. So it kind of made me wonder, I'm like, oh, is does somebody else, has somebody else been bleeding in that trunk or is it her blood? Uh, we don't know, but yeah, um, here's the thing with that too. As far as the Avery case goes, everybody is thinking, well, you shot somebody. So there has to be all this blood, you know, just kaboom, like, but at least in that case, the allegation was that she was shot in the head with a 22 caliber um, long gun of sorts. And that's a really small round. So you're not necessarily going to get a huge amount of blood spatter. And um, so I, I think it all just depends on the wound. Yes, people yeah. will bleed. Um, obviously you puncture the body, you're going to bleed, but some wounds bleed more than others. And we like, we don't know how she was incapacitated. So there's not just because you shoot somebody doesn't mean there's going to be this huge explosion of blood because of the caliber of the weapon you can bleed inside. And, you know, I've learned all of these things over the years from covering cases. I'm certainly not a 
gunshot wound expert, just things I've picked up over the years. And, you know, people, when they commit crimes, they clean up. Well, and you bring up a good point, though, too, because the thing that we still don't know is we really don't know where she was killed or no, where we these have no injuries clue. were inflicted. And right. I think we're taking his, you know, his first confession mm-hmm. as gospel when in fact that may not even be the story really because I think there's some other evidence of something that may have happened in that cornfield that you know they'll never be able to prove and certainly did not indicate happened and you know served as the prosecution kind of touched on it there in their closing saying that there could have been a sexual motive here and that there likely was. Yeah, I would. I agree with you on that uh, 100%. And I found it weird that her clothing, I mean, obviously her shorts and her underwear were removed. Her headband was away from her body. We know based on what they said that the corn leaves or stalk were on the body. So it doesn't appear that animals got to it. So her shorts and her underwear and her headband came off somehow. You know, he claims to have blacked out or whatever. We don't know how he got her into the vehicle to get her to the cornfield. So it, to me, it says the evidence at least is that she was sexually assaulted in that cornfield more than likely and likely killed there. She may have been incapacitated when she was taken there. And we don't, we don't know how that happened, of course. Um, But I feel like it all shows that whatever happened likely happened right there. Well, and I suppose it's, it's possible that, If you're on a gravel road and you're fighting and, you know, I would assume that she fought for her life in that situation, if he says Mm -hmm. that she slapped him, it would be, it would stand to reason that at the very least she would have a skinned knee in whatever confrontation that would happen. And then maybe, you know, so somehow he gets her into the trunk and maybe he doesn't think there's anything to clean up in there because she's not excessively bloody in that moment. And, you know, you have a some kind of surface wound that does bleed and he wouldn't have known to clean that up. Just totally speculating here. No. And I, I agree with you on that too. Um, If she wasn't stabbed many times or what have you, there wouldn't be a lot of blood in the vehicle. So, and I I think you touched on something else that's really interesting and really important too, is the fact that he gave this statement, this confession, but just because he confessed and he and he did it doesn't mean that everything he said was true. I feel like some people, sometimes when they're recalling these things, they can't bring themselves to say the whole truth about what happened. I mean, if he was going to sit there with these officers and say, he say she was sexually assaulted, he's going to go through this and say he did this. I mean, these are like horrible. These are like the worst things you can do to a human being is sexually assault them and and kill them. And you're going to like, sit there in a room and and out there. I I just think that, I think that sometimes these people, they do these things and they can't put it. They just, they know how bad it is and they won't put the whole thing out there. Like, and I, I I think it's common when you hear people say they blacked out too. I've covered a few cases where people have said, oh, I blacked out or, and then you, you know, they come to and the person's dead or whatever. So um, I don't know. I I just think that to think just because somebody confesses and they put the whole truth out there, that's not necessarily what happens. So in those other cases you've covered where there's been this element of blacking out, was there, did they try a, a defense of more like a medical issue of blacking out? No, there was one that comes to mind in particular here where the defendant didn't say that he the defendant 
didn't say it to the police, but there was a, a woman that he allegedly told this story to about how his wife died. Um, it was a case here where I live in the Cincinnati area. The guy was named Ryan Winmer, and he was accused of killing his wife in their home. And the police investigation in the very beginning was kind of botched. The guy who was the detective was I guess fancied himself this hotshot detective, but he wasn't really. And he, it came out later that he had falsified some of his credentials. Well, she, um, the wife, Sarah, she had gone into the bath and taken a bath. And then he calls 911 and he says, Oh my God, my wife's not breathing. She was in the bathtub, blah, blah, blah. And he pulled her out of the bathtub and, um, laid her on the carpet. And you can kind of hear on the 911 call that he's like, like kind of making these breathing noises when he was saying he was performing CPR. So he actually had three trials. (laughs) There was a, uh, he was convicted in the first trial and the conviction was vacated. He got a new trial because it came out that the jurors were experimenting to see how long there it took for the water to dry on their skin and stuff like that because she had been taken out of the bathtub, you know, and her hair was still wet, but her body was dry. That was the testimony when the paramedics got there. Um, And then he got a second trial and there was a hung jury. And then he got convicted in the third trial. And in the third trial, this woman he had been talking to on the phone came forward and said that one night he called her and he confessed to her that he did it and that he blacked out And he didn't really remember what happened. And so um, they had been arguing or something. So that's the case I was referring to where that's happened. And we were talking about some other ones, you know, among ourselves at Law and Crime the other day. And I can't remember the others, but yeah, uh, that's one where, and of course he said, the defendant said, Ryan said she was lying. You know, I didn't say that to her or whatever, but that, but it, it's not uncommon to hear that type of thing. So. Someone did ask me once they said, well, well, so if he said he blacked out, like they must be going for an insanity defense. And I said, I don't think that's even <laughs> remotely. No, he, he went for the two oh. other, some two guys kidnapped me and did it defense. Yes. so no no but you would have thought maybe that would have been a better way to go obviously he was hoping to get out of there he was hoping to get off scot-free he doesn't want a manslaughter conviction he wants you know (laughs) he comes up with two other masked men (laughs) that that did it oh my gosh yeah and I want to I want to get there um because like my mind was absolutely blown by that um me too have (laughs) any thoughts on that initial confession I mean so much time was spent picking apart the credentials and the credibility and experience of that Pamela Romero yeah and I I thought that whole conversation was interesting because I wonder if they would do it differently next time I don't know if they necessarily would do it that way again. You mean with that particular officer? Well, yeah, her as the officer doing the translating, having mm-hmm. the conversation singularly as opposed to, you know, really rallying. And then I wonder, did they just potentially not expect that to happen and next thing you know they're in it and he's confessing and they don't want to rattle the situation and move people in and out now I just thought it was a strange I thought it was a strange approach to to have her control the entire situation well you know it's funny that you bring that up because I thought that you know they had the one guy from Homeland Security testify and he was he was fluent in Spanish or at least conversant um the, the guy that's getting ready to retire, um, he had actually gone to the, you know, Yarby farms that day. 
and spoke with him because he could speak Spanish. And they probably, I'm thinking they must've gone with her because they said they had used her in the past. She's very nice. She seems very nice and sweet. She's a native Spanish speaker. So maybe they thought would, you know, she's from Mexico as well. Maybe they thought she'd be able to, you know, develop a rapport and a bond with him. The whole botching the Miranda warning in the beginning. I mean, that is just so, (laughs) is so important. You can't do that. So I'm thinking maybe they thought, oh, it's a woman. She's from Mexico as well. She can probably be, you know, we're kind of alike. So I'm assuming they probably were ready to have a stroke when they figured out the Miranda warning was botched. So you can't, you can't, I mean, they were cool, calm and collected at trial, but you can't tell me that they weren't just infuriated when they realized that she messed up the first Miranda warning, because I was surprised the whole thing didn't get thrown out. Right. Right. And I guess only because that she did it again in the car there, which did you think, what did you think about them not having anything recorded in the car, anything, you know, no, here's where, you know, no walk and talk, if you will. Oh, I thought, I think that's really weird. I would I think thought it that, was strange. yeah. And if you're going to take him out to the cornfield, I mean, you could have gotten a video camera. Everybody's got a video camera on their iPhone these days, you know, police departments routinely you know, videotape or photograph crime scenes. So I don't know, get some lights and take him out there and, or wait until it gets a little lighter and then take him out there and, you know, do the walk and talk and record it. I'm surprised they didn't record everything the whole time. So when you're leaving the sheriff's office, you know, you've got these cameras in the cruisers, typically not, I guess not all departments do. And maybe being a rural department, maybe they didn't, Right. but you would think you would at least be recording on your iPhone or have something going to where you could record this entire interaction. That's where Chad Freeze's argument landed for me, where he said, you have the entire resources of the federal government and you can't take out your iPhone. I thought that was a fairly good argument on his. <laughs> no, I thought, I thought that was an excellent point. He was absolutely right. In this day and age to not have a recording is just mind boggling to me. Okay. So let's get to the defense now. So before we get to the second confession, I want to talk a little bit about Dalton Jack because, and we tweeted about this for a second. I thought that the incessant questioning of Dalton turned him into a sympathetic figure in my mind. Yeah, I think, I think you're right about that. I mean, he obviously, he's a young kid. He was not a good boyfriend (laughs) uh, as most, a lot of kids who are 19 are not good boyfriends. Yes. I think there was a risk there that you make it look like you're just, you're beating up on the kid whose girlfriend was murdered. So yes, he was cheating on her. Yes. He was, you know, texting and sexting with this other girl, but I think you have to walk a fine line there. But I I don't think they had much else to go with. And that's why it was confusing because I realized that overall their strategy is just to poke holes wherever possible. But by implying that Dalton had motive, you're also suggesting that Dalton could be one of the mystery men, the come on Jack, you know? And so that's where it started to become like, you're asking the jury to make several leaps here, you know, that not only could it be someone else, but that potentially Dalton could have. Well, I think they were totally implying that it was Dalton and his brother because they said the one was smaller. The one guy with the knife was smaller and the guy with the gun was bigger and huskier. And, (laughs) you know, that kind of sounds like Dalton and his brother, his brother appeared to be a little bigger than 
right no Dalton so I yeah I just thought that was um I mean I thought that was super hokey but I guess they had to go with it because they had that unknown DNA in the trunk so uh, but it was just such an outrageous story I mean totally outrageous that and I think I somebody actually tweeted to me and said you know, this kind of thing happens all the time. And I thought to myself, I didn't even respond, but I wanted to say, no, it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Masked men do not break into people's trailers and abduct them so they can use their car to kill somebody. That doesn't, that does not happen. I'm I'm not saying it's never happened in the history of humanity, but I think it's highly unlikely. Well, and isn't that what Scott Brown then said? He said they left the eyewitness to the crime with a car and a cell phone. (laughs) Right. When you would think they would just, if they have a gun and a knife, they could just kill him too. And then take take his car and ditch it. Overall, Facebook commentary did not like Dalton. They thought he was smarmy. They thought he was smirky. And they thought that his memory was not where it should be for, um, you know, a guy who who lost his girlfriend that he should, that he should have remembered some more of these text message exchanges. I don't know. I'm iffy on that. I could see him wiping away a lot of those. You know, if you want to look back on your girlfriend's life and what she meant to you, I think you're going to wipe away any bad stuff that you did. To, in, yeah, you're, in order you're to probably going to like memory, you you're know, gonna make it you're going to you're going to romanticize it. You're going to yeah. forget the bad stuff. And he's probably embarrassed and he should be embarrassed. But right. there's probably a lot of 19 year old, 20 year old boys uh, phones that I guess he was 21. I think he was a year ahead of Mo- uh, Molly. So I should say like a 21 year old guy, you know, there's probably a lot of their phones you could look in and find all kinds of things where you're like, Oh my God. Um, you know, I'm sure his parents aren't <laughs> too happy with him right now. So, but you know, he's a 21 year old kid and guys, you know, typically mature at a slower rate than, than women do. Um, you know, that's what they always say, at least. I don't know. I just, I thought sometimes he looked like he was hiding something, but at the same time, it seemed pretty clear to me that he wasn't in the area when this happened. Right. Very clear. He still loved her. He just, obviously he's a a young guy. He's immature. And you know, this whole story about wanting to get married, maybe it was true. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. I had someone message me who was like, why didn't they show a receipt from the K jewelers ring? (laughs) And it was like, cause the, the argument is not about whether or not he was going to actually propose or whether there had been a, an agreement about getting married or whatever. I just, I, I came home from that first day of, um, of listening to Dalton. And I just said to my husband, like, you know, just imagine the unfortunate circumstances here where you're just dating a girl. You're mm-hmm. not the greatest, smartest guy that ever was. And right. then this thing has happened and your entire character is brought into question. I just, I felt very, very bad for him about that. I mean, I, I did too at some time, at some points. And then other points, I just wanted to be like, dude, really? Right. <laughs> like, come on. Like, if you don't want to date a girl, you want to go pursue this other girl, let it, you know, go, go do it and break up with Molly. You know, I, right. I, I don't know. I I've never been a 21 year old boy, so I'm not going to pretend to (laughs) understand exactly how they think. It did bother me to hear me that he's still texting that Jordan lamb and he still seems to be like this ever present, like 
I don't know. I I thought that was a little weird. It's like, leave this girl alone. I don't know. Yeah. And she has a baby now and a husband. Super bizarre. Okay. How about, how about Ron Pexa? That was creepy. That was weird, right? He lives like right next to the cornfield, right? Uh Uh-huh. So I, yeah, I thought that was really wild. And um, the fact that the defense brought his daughter in and everything. um, Wow. And they were saying, Oh, look, the cops are protecting one of their own. Ron Peck says a cop. I mean, I felt like they threw everything at the wall that they could have. Um, but obviously it is very interesting and strange that, you know, you've got what the one guy, Wayne, is it Wayne Chandler Wayne or something? Yeah, Wayne Chaney, Chaney. That's right. Yeah. Wayne Chaney. And you've got Ron Pexa and he just happens to be a former cop and he was abusive to his, the women in his life. And he has the um, torture room in the basement. <laughs> totally creepy. I I'm what? just like, it's horrifying, but to our knowledge, well, we don't know if they searched. I mean, how did the, bl- it still doesn't explain how the blood got into, no, um, no, it certainly doesn't the Haina Rivera's vehicle. So, I mean, that's, it just seems like all the evidence led to him, the car, the blood, the cornfield. So overall, I, I thought, I can't believe there's so many creepy potential suspects in little Brooklyn, Iowa. I know. Isn't that horrifying actually? Yeah. But I, I bet you, if you went and looked on your sex offender registry for the area where you live, I do that every once in a while. And I'm always like, Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm always no. surprised at how many registered sex offenders live around I did that me. during a break last week. I'm not even kidding you. I looked and there are three. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I'm just like, I'm sure there's just creepy people everywhere, I guess that yeah. have these sexual issues. So and on Pexa, you would never know, I guess, because it sounds right. like he wouldn't be on the registry. So, right. No. And, and I, oh, I felt weird even including him in any of my coverage or even my tweets, because at the end of the day, like he's not on trial here. And I felt I brought up Dalton Jack a lot in my coverage just because it was such a censured theme, but using those other names, just, they, I don't know. It made me nervous to just throw, throw yeah, their names. I, I felt a little, I, I did put them in my tweets and I felt a little weird about it, but I mean, it's we part only, of a court record. It's fine, but it is part of a court. Yeah, it is part of a court record. And the only reason I felt comfortable with even the Ron Pexa stuff was because the daughter testified and she said there's documentation and he was part, he was investigated. I mean, they did, obviously they took the call and they took the tip and I guess Wayne Cheney, they interviewed him a couple of times. It sounded like too. So, right. And was he the uh, one I've, who walked out of an interview or was that Ron? He's, I think Wayne Cheney is the one that stopped one of the interviews. He stopped cooperating. Obviously they're not on trial. So I don't know if anybody looked in their vehicles, but once you have the blood in Bahena Rivera's car, I mean, I I don't know what else you're supposed to do. I mean, are you supposed to just run down every other man who could have been in the area when you've got a guy saying, here's her body and here's in the blood in the car? Like, what are you supposed to do? Overall, in the Facebook comments, and there were hundreds, it's interesting the level of, and and I think it'd be different if they were sitting on the jury, but so many of the comments were wanting everyone in the town of Brooklyn to be excluded in order to convict one person, you have to exclude all other people. I mean, the the amount of people who wanted buckle swabs for the entire community, the amount of people who wanted 
not just DNA, but also fingerprints at every single scene that was identified. And there was a lot, there was just a lot of criticism and nitpicking of these, these little evidentiary details and how that would be enough to provide reasonable doubt. And I thought like, well, number one, it'd be different if they were on the jury, but number two, like that just shows what prosecutors are up against when it comes to proving their cases is a very, very skeptical group of people who also thinks that they are more knowledgeable than law enforcement and prosecutors and they would have done it different and they would have done it better. You know, I'm assuming most of those people don't work in those realms. They're not, they're not police officers. They're not investigators. I, I, I think they should have asked Dalton for a DNA swab early on just so they had it in case, um, some evidence delayed or yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would think you would want that, um, then they could have very easily compared it to the DNA in the car, the unknown DNA. And then they could have said, okay, yeah, it's his or it's not, you know, and then it would have been, I I, I think they could have, I think they should have done that. That just to me seemed like, because the, you know, the person closest, the boyfriend and the husband, the spouse is always the, you know, primary suspect. So if you're investigating him and running him to the ground, as Scott Brown said, well, you might as well take his DNA. That's how I look at it. But I don't think we need to go out and fingerprint and get buckle swabs from, you know, everybody in the town of Brooklyn. Right. Let's get to Rivera himself. First of all, I was surprised that he testified. I was not expecting to hear from him. Did you think we were going to hear from him? I feel like whenever you have a case where there's a, a allegation of a false confession or a defense claim of a false confession, I feel like that you kind of have to put the defendant up there. Okay. But. I saw a case here in 2019 where that didn't happen, where there was an alleged false confession and they did not put the the, uh, defendant on the stand. And that was uh, Skylar Richardson. I don't know if you know that case. I'm familiar with the name. Yeah. She had a baby in her parents' house. She was a high school cheerleader. She had a baby in her parents' house and then buried it in the backyard. Okay. Yes. (laughs) So she claimed her defense team claimed that she confessed falsely and they did a false confession defense and she was acquitted and she did not testify. So I felt like I just thought, I remember in our morning meeting that day, I said to everybody like, well, I just can't imagine they're going to put him on the stand because he's going to have to speak for through a translator. And I just don't know how that's going to, you know, work if the jury doesn't speak Spanish I mean, are you losing some inflection through the translator? Are you losing some emphasis or some, you know, meaning? And then all of a sudden there, there he is, he's up there. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> oh my God, he's testifying. How can this, you know, wow, it's going to be crazy. And it was crazy. So on that note, do you think that the translation lost some of, of, of who he is or, or his demeanor? Cause no. I don't think I, he was so flat. Exactly. I mean, the whole time. And even when he's recounting this, you know, thing that hap- he claims happened to him where he's kind of kidnapped at knife point and gunpoint, I would think that would be kind of traumatic if that happened. And it's just like, yeah, so these two guys, you know, and I could actually, I understand a little bit of Spanish. I took like four years of it, but I was listening along and I would kind of hear what he was saying a little bit. Not, I couldn't understand everything, obviously, but just, you know, I could get the general gist, but I just felt like it was very cold, very matter of fact there. I just didn't feel there was any emotion. And I understand some people are not emotional or don't emote. 
but there was like no emoting. There was like, like negative zero emoting. Correct. And there was a lot of recounting of some of the more key details that were very glossed over. Like even the whole notion of getting out of the shower and two men being in your trailer, it was sort of like, yeah, they were there. Then we were there for a little while longer. We stayed for a while after that. <laughs> I remember that, like that sentence being said a couple times. And I'm like, but wait, what's happening during this time? Are they, you know, is there a gun to your head? Is there a mm-hmm. knife to your throat? Like in what capacity are you just there for a little while? And even the driving, it was like, then we'd turn, then we'd stop. <laughs> and then we'd turn again and then we'd stop. And I, and I just thought what, like the storytelling of it didn't make any sense to me. No, it didn't. And I, that's a, that's a good point too. I mean, I mean, you're talking about being kidnapped and you're saying you understand the basics of English, but how are you, I mean, you understood enough for them to say, get in the car and drive or whatever. I mean, what really, what, and then it kind of made me wonder, I'm like, well, what, what if there were more people involved in this? And it's not just him. Mm-hmm. It's not too masked men, but what if there are who knows? Like, is there somebody else involved in this? And he's just, I, I don't know. It was very, very weird. Ultimately, I think this is how I described it to someone who was not watching the trial. I said, if my kid broke a lamp, okay. <laughs> and he says, I swear I didn't mama. I swear I didn't. I swear I didn't. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't have the proof for it. There was maybe, you know, I, I knew he'd been playing in the area, but and he convinced me enough that he didn't do it. I might, I might be like, you know, it could have been the dog, could have been the wind. I don't know. But the minute he tells me that an elephant broke out of the zoo and did it, right? Now I know you did it. Now so you're so- knowing you're lying. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, it just felt like, like, had they not crossed into a big fantasy territory, I think you could have gotten some people on board with the. There's a lot of creeps in Brooklyn and Dalton's not a great dude. Yeah. But how would they, and I know they don't have to prove anything, but how do you still have the blood in the car? Right. Well, and I think as a matter of storytelling, I thought because you didn't know this double man story was coming, Mm -hmm. I didn't know where they were going with the DNA. You know, because ultimately he said, oh yeah, no, she was in there. She was in there. And he agreed with the, with the prosecution several Mm -hmm. times. And because I didn't know we were looking for two other people, like the narrative didn't add up for me at the time. No, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. It doesn't make any sense. And going back to what you're saying that the example with your son, (laughs) it almost reminded me of something like a second grader would come up with, oh, well, I did this really bad thing, but these other people kind of help. They made me do it. And it's like, you're looking for a way it's like anybody, but me, you know, right. <laughs> it just is a really bad story. It right. is a really bad story. Now, if, if in 15 years it comes out that it was actually true and that's the unknown DNA, in the trunk, you know, I'll have egg on my face, but I'm, I mean, just the fact that the blood was in the car and he knew where the body was and he, before anybody even knew where she was, he's telling them, I put corn stalks on her and there she is with corn stalks on her. I mean, right. Of course he had to have done it. Okay. So last thing on this topic, what did you think of Jennifer freeze in the post saying, if we were going to make up a story, we would have come up with something better. Yeah, I, I that, <laughs> that really stood out to me. And I just thought to myself, so you're basically telling us, you know, it's not true. Right. I mean, that's kind of what I like you. You didn't like the story, but you had to go with it. You know, 
I guess you don't choose clients, you know, but you do choose what you go with. Right. And maybe he wanted it up there. I, I don't know, but maybe he wanted to testify, but obviously she didn't think it made sense. She basically told us she didn't think it made sense. And they actually seemed like, even though they're filing the appeal, they kind of, you know, she said, well, we appreciate the time they took and the verdict is what it is or whatever she said. So I just was like, I don't think they were surprised and they don't seem particularly upset either. So really quickly, can you tell me like, we don't have to go like go over all the making a murderer stuff, but like, has that whole hubbub died down from like everybody recognizing you and you did so many, so many interviews about being like the heartthrob from making a murderer. (laughs) Did any of that resurface when the second season came out? Only a little bit. I I just felt like the second one didn't have, as much punch as the first, obviously. Yeah. And I feel like the first one came out, like you have to keep in mind, it came out right before Christmas um, in 2015, I think. And I, I didn't even know it was coming out. I, I got a text like a week before it came out from one of the defense attorneys. And he said, oh, here's the trailer for this show and you're in it. And I was like, what? <laughs> Are you, are you joking? Like, what, what are you talking about? And I, because my, I literally had just gotten married in New York, my husband and I, and I like, it was like the next morning I had this text on my cell phone and I was like, what? Like, so, and then it came out and I, I was like, not even planning on watching it. I'm like, I don't need to watch a show about this. I lived it. I, you know, I saw what happened. I saw covered the case for years. And, um, then my phone, it was like a, or maybe it was my phone or my laptop one night just started blowing up like ping, ping, ping. I started getting all these followers on Twitter and I'm like, people are asking me questions. And then I was like, God, I guess I'm going to have to start watching this. So it was right by the holidays and I, people were home and watching this. And so, yeah, it was, um, it's died down. Obviously I still get tweets from people. Sometimes, you know, people blame reporters and the media and they don't think they think we should be doing more. We didn't do enough. And, um, that we watched this, you know, grave miscarriage of justice and all of this stuff. And all I can say to you is that, you know, we covered these cases very closely. The juries rendered their verdicts. The defendants have both appealed and both appeals have gone nowhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, Brendan got a little bit of a break, but then the, at the federal level, the one judge said, yeah, okay. Um, you deserve a new trial, but then that, that was overturned by an appellate court at the federal level. So, so what do you think about this new evidence that Zellner is bringing up now? Kathleen Zellner saying that there's this witness putting Bobby Dassey and an older gentleman pushing the RAV to the junkyard. And that's her, her bombshell that she came out with. I think it was in April. Well, that's what she put on a piece of paper and that guy signed it. And having covered that case for years, I think I'd like to talk to this gentleman myself and hear from him out of his mouth what he says he saw. Yeah. I, I find it hard to believe this guy said, well, I saw Bobby Dassey pushing a RAV4. Um, I think I would like to hear, um, I, I don't go just what's on paper. I, I go and find people myself <laughs> and talk yeah. to them. So um, I would want to hear from this general gentleman myself. And if there is a hearing granted, uh, we will hear from him and he will be questioned and cross-examined about it. And um, he said it was really early in the morning, right? Like right. he's delivering newspapers early in the morning and he sees Something like that. two people pushing a vehicle. And you would think if he, I, I know they said he called the police, I think, um, 
this was, I think this came out during the Chauvin trial and I was kind of in what I call the Chauvin bubble for <laughs> yeah. like a month and a half. But, you know, he, I said, I think that he said he called police. And if I'm stating that, I apologize. And that nobody called him back or something. Right. To that he was effect, kind of rebuffed but, in some way. Yeah. But this trial, I mean, this, the Avery trial at least was on TV every day for six weeks, wall to wall, like streaming coverage. You could log on the internet anytime and watch the trial. Every station was there from Milwaukee and Green Bay. TV city had eight television stations, plus I think court TV at the time. And, um, Dayton, I think was there a bunch of places were there, radio stations, newspapers. So, I mean, there was blanket coverage of this throughout the area. So I find it hard to believe this guy has been sitting around for that long, but you know, I'll talk, I would love to talk to the guy. Okay. Tell me what you saw. Right. Who did you see? <laughs> so right. it's, it's easy to type it out on a piece of paper. I'd like to know how he what led him to that identification specifically? So my friend was producing at WGBA during the time oh, of the got it. case. So, so of course, you know, I was texting him all through watching the show and he was like, this is ridiculous. There's like, this is just not showing the accurate um, amount of evidence that there existed against Stephen Avery. I will say that the show um, put the most positive light on Stephen Avery that it could and did. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly, um, he was the main character in the story. And I feel that the show told the story from his perspective and point of view. There were things left out. And I know that the filmmakers have gotten really upset when people say, oh, you know, they claim we left things out. We couldn't put it all in. It was 10 hours. <laughs> That's an eternity in TV. Right. <laughs> so um, I do feel like because they had the Avery family would only talk to them. There could have been things added. I felt like there were like edits made and like, it was like every time you put creepy music on the screen, when a cop or a prosecutor pops up, it kind of like, you're kind of shading how you want these people to be perceived. There was a lot of evidence at trial against Steven. I mean, it was, there was a lot. And then he had this blood planning defense. And at the end of the day, the jurors obviously looked at blood planning defense and didn't believe that the cops put the blood in the car. They believe it came from his finger. And that's what the jury decided. And I know the other side will say, oh, they were so tainted by the media coverage and blah, 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 blah. We sat through the jury selection. It took a week. A lot of those jurors were like, yeah, they had heard of the case, but they didn't necessarily, you know, people aren't sitting around watching the news every day. You know what I mean? They have lives. Right. And so a lot of these jurors had heard about it or they heard about this or they heard about that, but they weren't like, didn't sound like they were sitting there researching the case every day for a year and a half. Okay. All right. I am going to let you go, but I'm just going to ask you one just last question because I am curious. So obviously you're enjoying Law and Crime Network right now. Would you ever go to law school? Do you think? <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to law school. I used to, <laughs> I'm going to be dating myself here, but, uh, the show LA law used, was on when I was a kid and yeah. I loved that show. <laughs> I loved watching it. And I always thought I would love to go to law school and I would love to be a lawyer. And then, you know, college came around and I got out of college and I just wanted to start working and get a job in news. And even when I was up in Wisconsin and after covering the Avery case, I actually toyed with the idea quite a bit. And I kind of looked at like, maybe I could go to this law school or maybe I, you know, but I still wanted to work while I was in law school. 
it's like something always happened that kept me from doing it. And then I would talk to people who were either lawyers or who had gone to law school and they're like, oh my God, don't do it. <laughs> you don't, <laughs> you don't have to go to law school, only go to law school if you want to practice. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, it costs a fortune. And then you get out and you don't make as much money as you thought you would make. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I kind of took that advice. Um, but part of me thinks it would still be cool if I could go to law school. And I've actually looked at these programs where it's like an accelerated program where you yeah. do it in one year versus three, yeah. because I just can't, I can't just like take, I can't just like stop working for three years right. and I'm six year old and yeah. <laughs> like tell my kid to go to his room for a couple of years while I go to law school. <laughs> I mean, life's crazy busy, as you know, with kids. So um, maybe one day I will, I don't know, maybe I'll be like, 55 one day and be like, Hey, I, I think I'm just going to go to law school now, but yeah. who knows? But I, I thought about it many times over the years. Well, we'll see. You never know, especially after <laughs> right. the year we've had, it's like, you never know what's going to happen. You never know. So, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I want to, I, one of those year long ones would be good. If I could do one of those year long accelerated ones, that'd be yeah. awesome. I could Whatever, probably knock like, that out. Law school quickly. plan Kim Kardashian is on do that plan. Yeah. Yeah. And I heard, I just heard she didn't pass the bar. The baby bar is what they yeah. call it out in California. And she yeah. was really upset. Which but notoriously, that- that's a terrible, terrible bar it has a pass rate of like 25, 30%. But yeah, they say it's really hard out there, but, um, I heard, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't know if this is true. I heard she's going to a law school. It's maybe not accredited or something, something weird. I, I don't know if that's true. So Kim K, if you're yeah. listening to this and <laughs> I'm so sorry if I misstated something about your law school stuff. I wish you the best of luck. Please, Kardashian fans, do not come trolling me on Twitter. Um, is there any place that people can find you to follow your coverage? Um, I'm on Instagram, at Anjanette. I'm on Twitter, at Anjanette 5 And I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash L. So... Um, I don't know if obviously we'll be covering the verdict or not the verdict, the sentencing on July 15th in Montezuma. Do you guys, will you guys go to Montezuma for that? I doubt it. I doubt it. We'll probably just work through a Des Moines affiliate and, you know, might as well. Exactly. Exactly. And I I don't, we're not really expecting any major surprises from that. I don't. Yeah. He's going to get, I mean, hearing, hearing from her family or, you know, anyone who gives a victim impact would be important, obviously, but sure. Any idea what you're covering next? The Bob Durst case out in LA. We've been airing the oh, yeah. that trials. So I'm probably going to be doing some stories on that. Okay. And that's, have you, did you watch the jinx when it was out a couple years ago? No, I missed that one. Yeah. Oh God. You should totally watch the jinx. Okay. So Robert Durst, he's accused in LA of murdering his best friend, Susan Berman. Uh, the theory that he murdered her to silence her about what she knew about the disappearance of Bob Durst's wife, Kathy, back in 1982. And Bob Durst is like fabulously wealthy. He comes from this like fabulously wealthy real estate family in New York. And his wife, Kathy disappeared in 1982. And then he goes to Galveston, Texas. When he hears the case is being reopened, her body's never been found. And he ends up murdering his neighbor, Morris Black, and dismembering him and throwing him in the Galveston Bay. And he actually was acquitted. Um, <laughs> he was acquitted, found not guilty. He said he, it, he did it in self-defense. And now he's being tried for the murder of his friend, Susan Berman. So oh I'll be covering a little bit of that. And I'll probably be doing some stories on the Scott Peterson case coming up here this week because oh, yes. 
Yeah, the prosecutor said they won't seek the death penalty in the resentencing. So that's pretty interesting. That's very interesting. Okay, so follow Anjanette for all of that. Um, Thank you again for your time. You've been very, very generous on your memorial. Thanks for having me. My thanks to Anjanette for spending an hour with me. She did that interview on Memorial Day. So bless her for giving me an hour of her time. So follow her on Instagram. You can follow her on Twitter as well, where she does a lot of live tweeting of the trials and the hearings that she is covering. So she is a great follow, and I very much appreciate her expertise. Hey, again, follow along with the podcast. We are at On a Mother Level. I hope you will check out another episode if you are brand new to the show. I appreciate you. Please tell a friend. Word of mouth is everything to small podcast gals like me, so I appreciate it very much. And as we always say here on On a Mother Level, when it comes to parenthood, we can relate. You have been listening to the WQAD Podcast Network.